The Daily 202's Big Idea is sponsored by DXC Technology. Let us show you the way to your digital future. Thrive on change. Good morning. I'm James Hellman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Wednesday, February 26th. In today's news, the CDC warns of the inevitable spread of coronavirus inside the United States. President Trump dials up his attacks on the judicial branch, and at least 17 were killed during police clashes with protesters amid Trump's visit to India. But first, the big idea. Bernie Sanders came under withering and sustained criticism during last night's presidential debate in Charleston, South Carolina, as his six rivals launched urgent attempts to stop the candidate who has the clearest path to the Democratic nomination. Standing at center stage for the first time, a reflection of his newfound frontrunner status, Sanders faced attacks from all sides on matters including his inconsistent record on gun control, his praise for leftist dictators, the cost of his signature Medicare for All plan, and the damage other candidates say he would inflict on down-ballot Democratic candidates if he were the nominee. Sanders largely weathered the attacks, throwing counterpunches of his own, and at times seemed to relish the sudden attention after decades as an insurgent underdog pushing ideas from the sidelines. I'm hearing my name mentioned a little bit tonight. (laughs) The 10th Democratic debate came at a critical moment ahead of South Carolina's primary on Saturday and then three days later, Super Tuesday, when a third of the party's delegates are up for grabs across 14 states. With the future of several of the campaigns hanging in the balance, the candidates let it rip, throwing their arms in the air and shouting over one another. Crosstalk is a word that appears a lot in the transcript presenting a cacophony from a party that, as it approaches its biggest voting day, has made no real strides in its quest to figure out where it's headed. They debated capitalism and socialism, a host of liberal ideas and cautions about their cost. They struck at one another's past, and they questioned the legitimacy of their promises for the future. When candidates pivoted off Sanders, Elizabeth Warren cast herself as a more effective version of her liberal rival. Mike Bloomberg argued that Sanders would lose to Trump, Joe Biden hit Sanders on guns, and Pete Buttigieg said Sanders would be a drag in November. I am not looking forward to a scenario where it comes down to Donald Trump with his nostalgia for the social order of the 1950s and Bernie Sanders with a nostalgia for the revolutionary politics of the 1960s. Bloomberg appeared more steady and prepared than he was last week in Las Vegas, even as rivals reiterated many of the same critiques. He knocked Sanders over reports that Russians are attempting to help his presidential campaign in an effort to disrupt the Democratic contest. Amy Klobuchar used the chaos on stage to drive a point she's been trying to make throughout her campaign, casting herself as a common-sense civil leader who embodies Minnesota nice and can win in the Midwest. If we spend the next four months tearing our party apart, we're going to watch Donald Trump spend the next four years tearing our country apart. No candidate was in more need of a strong performance than Biden, who has staked his candidacy on winning South Carolina to reverse a string of three losses. His frustration showed as he repeatedly complained about the lack of decorum on stage and not getting enough time to speak. At one point he said, gentlemen don't get very well treated up here. Biden went after Sanders hard early, invoking the massacre at the Emanuel AME Church, which was just across the street from where the debate was taking place. A white supremacist killed nine parishioners there in 2015 as they prayed at a Bible study. Biden said the killer wouldn't have been able to get that weapon with a waiting period 
and he attacked Sanders for voting against gun control legislation five times, including some that included such waiting periods. Sanders said he regrets voting to give gun manufacturers legal immunity from lawsuits brought by victims of mass shootings. Billionaire Tom Steyer, back on the debate stage after failing to make the cut in Nevada, has spent more money advertising in South Carolina than any other candidate, and he's polling in third place. He attacked both Sanders and Bloomberg. Meanwhile, Biden attacked Steyer for investing in private prisons, a reflection of his strength in the polls. And there was a lot of talk about money in politics. Bloomberg stumbled verbally as he attempted to take credit for the new Democratic House majority. At one point, he appeared to say he bought them before quickly correcting himself. Let's take a listen. That all of the new Democrats that came in put Nancy Pelosi in charge and gave the Congress the ability to control this president, I, bought, I, I got them. For her part, Warren noted that Bloomberg spent heavily to help her Republican opponent, Scott Brown, when she ran for Senate in Massachusetts in 2012. She also attacked Bloomberg for giving money to support Republican Senator Lindsey Graham's reelection in South Carolina. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar this hump day. Number one, top officials at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, as well as the National Institutes of Health and other agencies, warned yesterday morning that the coronavirus is likely to spread in the U.S. This contrasted sharply with assessments from Trump and other White House officials who have been dismissing or downplaying concerns about the virus and trying to reassure everyone that it's under control. The mixed messaging came as the Dow Jones Industrial Average plunged 3.4%, bringing the two-day loss to more than 1,900 points, the worst in two years. Under pressure from the White House, the CDC then held a hastily called afternoon briefing to soothe concerns and say the immediate risk remains low. But at an earlier news conference, Nancy Messonnier, the director of the National Center for Immunization and Respiratory Diseases at the CDC, said ultimately they expect that we will see the virus spread in the U.S., explaining that it's not a question of if this will happen, but when this will happen and how many people in this country will have severe illnesses. The confused messaging is significant because it threatens to obscure urgent public health advice coming from the CDC. The CDC is urging businesses to prepare to consider replacing in-person meetings with telework. They're urging school authorities to consider ways to limit face-to-face -face contact, such as dividing students into smaller groups, using internet-based learning, or even closing schools if there's rapid contagion. The CDC says local officials should consider modifying, postponing, or canceling large gatherings that hospitals should consider ways to triage patients who don't need urgent care. And they're recommending that patients delay surgery that's not absolutely necessary. For its part, the White House seems mainly focused on reducing public alarm. Trump himself is highly concerned about the markets, and he's been encouraging aides not to give any predictions that might cause tremors. Privately, Trump has become furious about the Dow slide the last two days. Some White House officials have been unhappy with how Health and Human Services Secretary Alex Azar has handled the situation. Meanwhile, global financial markets continued losing ground overnight. Number two, Trump also escalated his attacks yesterday on the judicial branch in tweets and comments at a news conference in India just a month before the Supreme Court is set to consider congressional and prosecutors' requests for the president's closely guarded financial records. Trump targeted Sonia Sotomayor, and Ruth Bader Ginsburg, two liberal justices. He interpreted as biased a dissent from Sotomayor about his administration's tendency to seek emergency interventions from the Supreme Court. The president's broadside breached what normally is supposed to be an arm's length distance between the White House and the high court. 
and he cast the disagreements in starkly personal terms. Trump also attacked the juror who voted to convict his confidant, Roger Stone, and he injected new political drama into the legal debate over whether Stone deserves a new trial, tweeting during a hearing on the matter that the jury forewoman who voted to convict his friend was totally biased, and then he seemed to suggest the judge is as well. Trump's comments came as the judge, U.S. District Court Judge Amy Berman Jackson, rebuked him and others over their attacks on the juror, and they seemed to put the president at odds with his own Justice Department, which argued in court yesterday against Stone's bid for new legal proceedings. Number three, during that trip to India, which the president returned from overnight, Trump praised Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi's record on religious tolerance, even though violence was erupting over discrimination against Muslims. Trump avoided any public criticism of his host, whose political biography is also built partly on religious and cultural divisions, along with any comparison of Modi's practices with his own treatment of Muslim immigrants. Modi leads the Hindu Nationalist Party. At least 17 people were killed, including a police officer, in clashes in the capital city during Trump's visit. The violence began when supporters of a citizenship law that targets Muslims confronted opponents of the measure who were also protesting. The citizenship law, along with India's other actions, has drawn bipartisan criticism in Congress, but Trump has treaded lightly. The president said he brought the topic up during a closed-door meeting on Tuesday, but he was vague about whether he criticized Modi for his decision or pressed him to change course. Trump and Modi issued joint statements praising the growing defense cooperation between the two countries, but they did not field questions together. Although they spent much of the day together, including at a state banquet with salmon and grilled goat, Modi is known for not having held a single news conference during his six years as prime minister. And that's The Daily 202 for Wednesday, February 26th. Thanks for listening. I'm James Hellman. I'll talk to you tomorrow. Thank you.